This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. We're in the midst of a series on the influencer economy, how seemingly small shifts in our theology can open us up for deception and even scams. You may want to go back to the first episode in the series titled The Influencer Economy before starting this one, though this episode can stand on its own. A few years ago, the pastor at our church challenged the congregation write out a little mini gospel presentation in about 10 words. Just 10 words to explain perhaps the most important message in Christianity. Here are some of my friends reading just a few of the submissions. Jesus' resurrection reconciles holy God and sinful people who believe. God's righteous wrath shall be averted, pleading Christ's death alone. Christ died so that we might live. Choose God's grace th uh, through Jesus or default to God's punishment. He died on the cross for my sins, even though I constantly fall short. God's gift of reconciliation offered to humanity. I, I started a little bit on the top one. Oh, it gives a character. Well, we'll, go, we'll do them both again. The truth about God's plan of salvation for believers. Acceptance of undeserved blessings and atonement for yesterday, today, and forever. Faith in Jesus is enough to be forgiven and received. Individuals can have peace with God through Jesus' atoning death. Christ died so that we might live. There is no exact order to the words we say, no magic formula when sharing the gospel, so it can sound a little different from person to person. But the gospel is essentially what you heard. Mankind sinned against God, we can't correct that sin on our own, and Jesus paid the debt we owed. We can't earn our salvation. It's a free gift to those who follow Christ. But some of us don't stop there. We try to do the gospel plus a little bit more. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Steren at my church, which is always noisy, and that's an awesome thing. And this is truce. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will or donate, visit UGM.org. We know what the gospel is, but what is it not? 
There are so many different splinter groups, cults, and heresies out there, and many of them claim to use the Bible as part of their belief system. What it boils down to is the gospel plus something else. A little bit more. Yes, Christ died on the cross, but we still have to work to get into heaven. Or you'll get into heaven, but what if you want God to bless you here on earth? It's easy. Give us money, do a pilgrimage, or obey rules that aren't in the Bible, and God will bless you. At least, that's what they say. One of these sneaky, false systems goes by a bunch of different names. It's known as the Word of Faith Movement, Name It and Claim It Theology, and the Prosperity Gospel. It looks like the straightforward gospel, but with a few catches. Prosperity is big, like really big, with television networks, radio programs, and churches all over the world. And even in mainline churches, prosperity gospel creeps into our conversations and our sermons. That is the subject of a convicting new film titled American Gospel. We're going to be pulling clips from it throughout this episode and intercutting an interview I did with the director. His name is Brandon Kimber. He has some personal experience with this movement. Well, I grew up in the Word of Faith prosperity movement, and I guess you could say that their general belief is that it is always God's will that you are healthy and wealthy. Um, I was very familiar with Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn is on television a lot. He's very well known in prosperity circles. I had friends and family who went to his crusades to try to get healed. Brandon left the movement when he was about 15 years old. I began to understand what this whole movement was about and, and was seeing how it was getting more mainstream. It was infiltrating churches that weren't necessarily prosperity gospel churches. So he created a tool to help people learn what this was all about. The movie is kind of long, it's two and a half hours, so it's a commitment. And for those keeping score on their Truce Podcast bingo cards, it leans more towards Reformed theology. So how did the health and wealth gospel get started? After the Civil War ended in 1865, the United States went through a long period of contemplation, of grief. All these people lost brothers, sons, husbands, fathers in a war against their neighbors. People, some people, turned to the occult, contacting mediums in hope of reaching beyond the grave to those dead soldiers, those dead brothers and husbands and fathers. The 1800s were a century of revival tents, camp meetings, the founding of Mormonism, and the founding of the first sex cults in the country. Electric lights became a thing, personal sewing machines, and in walks Phineas Quimby, who is a hypnotist. You know hypnotism. Keep your eye on the watch as it swings back and forth, back and forth. You're getting sleepy. He started experimenting with ideas that disease and injuries were all in the mind. He had tuberculosis, and one day he went out for a ride and something went wrong. Phineas had to get out and run next to his horse. 
afterward, he felt a little better and chalked it up to mind over matter. It was probably just adrenaline. Still, he got really into the idea that the mind could control the body. It could heal itself. He becomes the father of new thought, which tied together all these ideas from his era about spiritualism and mind over matter. His philosophy influenced people like Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of the Christian science religion. She believed that Jesus came into the world not to save humans from sin, but in order to demonstrate right thinking. Right thinking. A nice theory if you're willing to ignore the Bible. In New Thought, which is a little different from Christian science, the distance between God and man was pretty small. Closing the gap meant drawing out the potential of humanity. People could control the world around them just with their thinking. It sounds a little nutty to us now, but remember that in the late 1800s, medicine was still rudimentary. The first surgery done under anesthesia wasn't until 1846, and anesthesia was not widespread during the Civil War. And during that conflict, people had their body parts amputated with saws. Instead of going to sleep or being numbed, they fought the pain by biting down on a stick or a bullet. In contrast, the idea that you could heal your body with your mind, heal your body with your mind, sounded pretty good. Enter E.W. Kenyon, a failed preacher and organ salesman. That's organ as in the piano-like thing, not human organs. He didn't see it as good enough for mankind to just think right, but they had to think in terms of God's word. He tried to marry biblical ideas with new thought. By the 1970s, his publishing arm sold 100,000 copies of his books per year. He used radio technology to transmit his ideas far and wide on Kenyon's Church of the Air where it was picked up by other radio preachers. He and others like him were influenced through radio and print, spreading this blend of new thought and Christianity. Kenyon impacted generations, including people like Kenneth Copeland, whose success as a television star and pastor made him unbelievably wealthy. One estimate places his wealth at $760 million, telling people that they can heal themselves. In turn, Copeland, according to American Gospel, is the inspiration for guys like Bill Johnson from Bethel Church. These ideas keep growing, spreading, in person, then over the radio, television, and social media. It spreads because it sounds really good to us. In our current media environment where everything is about shock and scandal and horror, positive thinking sounds pretty good. Yet Jesus told us that we would have to leave everything to follow him. There's even a story of him telling someone not to go bury their dead to skip out on a funeral to become his follower. This is the same Jesus who told the rich young ruler that he'd have to get rid of all of his riches in order to seek the kingdom of God. The prosperity gospel pushes those ideas aside and says, what do you mean you can't take it with you? Of course you can. 
You just have to do some mental gymnastics first. Some of those gymnastics include a pretty insidious idea. The Bible clearly teaches that there is one God and that Jesus is God. That we, you and I, are not that God. But that simple truth gets clouded within the Word of Faith movement. Here is mega pastor Joel Osteen from the documentary. My encouragement is never say negative things about yourself. I was taught that there was power in the things that I said to bring things into existence. I am young, I am beautiful, I am attractive. Remember, what follows the I am is going to come looking for you. The I am thing that he's referring to may not seem like a big deal, but it is. It's a key phrase in the Bible because I am is one of God's names. What Osteen is hinting at to the initiated is that we can become gods ourselves. Gods with a little g. There is a montage in the movie of famous preachers saying this thing explicitly. When I read in the Bible where he says, I am, I just smile and say, yes, I am too. At the heart of the prosperity gospel, the Word of Faith movement, is this doctrine called the little gods doctrine. You don't have a God in you. You are one. You are God's little G. He is big G, and you are little G. You're little G, God. The voice you heard saying, you don't have God in you, you are God's? That was Kenneth Copeland. This, of course, to anyone paying attention, is counter to the biblical view of God. It's much closer to that of Mormonism, where we can become God's by our deeds. The reason they have for believing that it's possible for us to become God's is that they believe that Jesus gave us that example. Here is Victoria Osteen. See, Jesus was man until God touched him and put the spirit of the living God on the inside of him. Again, the message is that Jesus was a man who became God. If he can do it, so can we, which we in the mainline Christian church have a special word for. It's called blasphemy. From American Gospel, here is Kosti Hinn. One of the most well-known mainstream Word of Faith preachers today is Bill Johnson from Bethel Church. I am getting to love Bill Johnson big time. They launched the band Jesus Culture, and they're really popular, and they sing some really cool-sounding songs. But people might not know, on page 29 of his book, When Heaven Invades Earth, Bill Johnson writes, in no uncertain terms, he, meaning Jesus, performed his miracles, his signs and wonders, as a man in right relationship with God. And then it says dot, 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 not as God. If he performed his miracles because he was God, then they would be unattainable for us. Therefore, since he did them as a man, I'm responsible to pursue that lifestyle. This theology has dire consequences. If I can become God, then why do I need Jesus in the first place? The answer is because he can give me stuff. He's my Santa Claus. Let's hear again from Kosti Hinn. I was the benefactor of the theology that we taught, which primarily makes Jesus your magic genie in a sense. And if you rub him right, if you do all the right things, he will bless you, you will have everything you want. I view the Holy Spirit like the genie from Aladdin. I had a totally false understanding of God. And so when God didn't do what I felt that he was supposed to do, I was very upset with him. I was very upset. That last voice was Constance Troutman. 
She was promised that if she had the goods, then she should be wealthy. Then she should be healthy. She'd be rich. What happens to the chronically ill if they can't heal with thoughts and with positive words? What happens then? It's a wonder that it continues. Remember E.W. Kenyon, the father of this movement? His wife died in 1914 of a prolonged disease. You'd think that he would have seen that his faith and his words didn't save his own wife. Instead, he and his philosophy continued. Traces of prosperity trickle into our modern theology, begging the question, if I'm sick, does that mean I don't have enough faith? If I'm poor, as indeed millions upon millions upon millions of people are, even millions of Christians, does that mean God doesn't love me? Instead of Christ's death on the cross being where Jesus covered all of my sin, I'm required to do more in the prosperity world. Trust harder, donate more, which shakes the faith of those who are not healed. Here is Russell Berger from the film. His wife has a chronic illness, which is documented in the film. He's intercut with Constance Troutman. Why can't I seem to get this doubt out of my heart? Why can't I conjure up this faith within myself to be able to rebuke Satan and rebuke the sickness and rebuke the, the poverty? And I fell into financial ruin shortly thereafter, probably within two months. And was highly upset with God. When you name it and you claim it and it still doesn't happen, what am I doing wrong, God? Speaking things into existence wasn't working. The quote-unquote favor I was supposed to have under that doctrine. If I follow Jesus, favor follows me. It just wasn't working. I was losing everything, like, by the day. The preacher's not to be blamed. And obviously God and the Bible aren't to be blamed, so who's left to be blamed? You are. You're the one. You don't have enough faith. You got too much sin. You're a failure. That hurts people. If we believe that the only thing standing between us and riches is more faith, it robs us of perspective. Again, millions of people around the world have very little control over their own poverty because of war, disease, bad water, religious and racial oppression, or a complete lack of opportunity. To tell those people that they're poor because of a lack of faith is just cruel. Prosperity robs us of our compassion for other people. And it's a bold attempt to remove us from any responsibility. Responsibility is thrust onto poor people, not on the political circumstances or on the foreign mining, farming, and extraction companies who refuse to pay a living wage. Instead, we say it's because poor people don't have the right thinking, and we put it on the sick in order to get ourselves out of the moral conundrum of making as much money as we can at the expense of others. It's pretty easy for prosperity teachers to go to the poor and the sick and exploit them because they never really have to take responsibility if you don't become healthy and wealthy. It's on you. Let's say you're a leader in this movement. Someone comes to you with a disease or an injury that you can't heal. Is it good for your career to admit that you can't do it? Of course not. It's easier to place the blame on the sick person. Say that they don't have enough faith. 
For some people, that means walking out of the church and never seeking God again. Remember our episode about using failure as a weapon? Here it is in practice. Prosperity weaponizes its own lack of results. If you've got cancer, it's because you haven't been thinking right thoughts. If you're broke, it's because you don't believe. Now, this is not to say that God can't heal people anymore. There is no biblical basis for that either. Though some people react to the prosperity movement by going to the other extreme and saying that God isn't in the miracle business anymore. Not until the end times, anyway. The Bible is, instead, firmly in between the two ideas. That God does heal people, but not all people. We are to pray for the sick, to tend to the poor, but it's up to him to choose who he's going to heal. The combination of all these beliefs is multifaceted. Followers are encouraged to work harder, pray harder, give more money, believe harder, do more, which can lead us to have pride in our own abilities instead of giving God the glory. We start to get the idea that we can earn our salvation, that we somehow deserve it, that we are not weighed down by our sin, but can indeed be sinless. Here's a clip from Jackie Hill Perry. It has an interesting juxtaposition between the claims of this movement and the way that President Donald Trump responded to the question of whether or not he believes he has ever sinned. The person will believe they can attain it, be the Pharisee, um, and work and work and work and work, or be the Mormon, <laughs> work and work, or the Muslim or the Jehovah's Witness. All of them. <laughs> you'll, you'll try to earn salvation by trying to be a good person. Why do I have to you know, repent, why do I have to ask for forgiveness if you're not making mistakes? I work hard, I'm an honorable person. I think we can understand the president better if we understand the faith tradition in which he grew up. As a kid, his family was pastored by Norman Vincent Peale. We covered this in detail in season one, the episode featuring Stephen Mansfield. Perhaps one of the reasons President Trump doesn't admit his shortcomings or those of his administration is because that would mean speaking negative words over his life. It could also explain why he uses hyperbole about being the best and the richest and the smartest person. Because as this movement teaches, you become what you speak. Your words have power. Listen again to that clip from Joel Osteen. My encouragement is never say negative things about yourself. I am young, I am beautiful, I am attractive. Remember, what follows the I am is going to come looking for you. If President Trump truly believes this philosophy, couldn't that explain, at least in part, his unwillingness to admit any fault within his administration? Our series is titled The Influencer Economy. So, what are the economics of this movement? It's probably easy to guess. These television preachers, authors, pastors make a lot of money by telling us what we want to hear. Like a pyramid scheme, all of the money trickles to the top. The thing you often hear is that God will bless you if you give money to these ministries. You'll be rich if you give money to them. 
Sometimes they'll send you items that supposedly have been touched or blessed by the TV preacher. The money is not going to help the poor. It's going to mansions, private jets, and expensive hotels. The thing about prosperity teaching is that people are hearing what they want to hear. Motivational speeches about the power of human potential. But the promises that are made are false. There are no guarantees about financial stability, health, or power in the Bible. Think about our examples. Moses, the man God chose to lead Israel to the promised land, was surrounded by cranky, rebellious people, chased by the Egyptians, lived a nomadic life, and never got to enter the promised land himself. Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, was beaten, bitten by snakes, thrown out of towns, imprisoned, shipwrecked, all in the process of doing ministry. Peter is said to have been crucified upside down. Jesus himself said that he had no home, no place to lay his head. Even his closest friends turned on him. He was tried in a kangaroo court, scourged, mocked, and crucified. That does not sound like health and wealth. There are any number of examples in the Bible that prove that God is not in the business of making us healthy or even happy. Daniel was fed to lions. Jeremiah was commanded to preach a message of destruction even though nobody would listen to him. And guess what? Nobody listened to him. When we try to remove suffering from our theology, it no longer resembles the real world. When promises are revealed to be lies, people turn their backs on God, sometimes for good. When mainline churches encounter these lies, they sometimes overreact in the opposite direction, insisting that not only are these preachers charlatans, but that God no longer performs miracles. Lies only make our camps more extreme, ever further into our own corners, ever further from orthodoxy. Special thanks to Brandon Kimber and Transition Studios. The film is called American Gospel, and you can find it on iTunes, Amazon, and Vimeo. It's well worth the rental, and it covers a lot of stuff that we couldn't include in this episode. We'll post links to it on our website at trucepodcast.com. You can find us on social media, join our email list, and download our free media timeout on the website as well. Once on the site, consider donating a little money to keep this project going. I'm several thousand dollars in the hole right now on this project and would appreciate any help you can offer. Please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. It helps a lot. And please keep truce in your prayers. Because this episode took a long time to report, we'll be taking next week off. But God willing, we'll talk again soon. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.